I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to Madeleine Schwartz, who has been following the Bataclan trial in Paris since last September and has written about it in the latest issue of the LRB. Can France judge terrorism, she asks, when terrorism has transformed its political system? Hello, Madeleine, and thank you for joining me. Hi, it's so nice to be here. So I've just referred to it as the Bataclan trial, and the Bataclan theatre is where 90 of the 130 people were killed, though, as you say in the piece, given the enormity of that, journalists have a tendency to overlook the other attacks in Paris on the same day. So maybe to begin, you could remind us in outline what actually happened on the 13th of November 2015. Yes, so um, the the victims in this attack actually preferred for it to be called the trial of November 13th, because on November 13th, there were three attacks across Paris. The first at right outside of the Stade de France, which is the French uh, national stadium where France and Germany were playing a soccer match. The second at a series of bars and open air terraces in the 10th and 11th arrondissement, and finally the most famous attack, which was in the Bataclan concert hall. These attacks left a total of 130 dead and hundreds more wounded and were claimed by the Islamic State. All but one of the suicide bombers and gunmen who carried out the attacks are now dead. So who are the 20 men on trial, 14 of them in court and six in absentia? Well, it's one of the paradoxes of this trial is that the people who one might most want to hear from have already died. So a number of them died over the course of the attack, and of the accused, five more are presumed dead, killed by coalition strikes in the Middle East. And their involvement in the attack really ranges. You have people who are involved, who, who are allegedly involved, involved in things like procuring false documents, driving terrorists um, to and from the airport, as well as um, accused like Osama Krayam, a Swedish national who is accused of being an ISIS member and planning the attacks, and Salah Abdeslam, the most famous of the accused, who was one of the original commando to have been in Paris on the day of the attacks, but who did not blow himself up, the reasons for that being one of the big questions of the trial. I mean, do people feel that they are the people that the people on trial are the ones who should be on trial, or is there a sense that these these are the people who they've been able to arrest and have been able to to put on trial? I mean, how satisfactory is it as a in terms of the, getting the people responsible? Well, there are, are enormous expectations for this trial, um, which is partly caused by the way that it has been set up, which is that it's an enormous trial. As, as you mentioned at the beginning, it's been going on since September. It's meant to, to end in June. And you have more than 2,000 plaintiffs and hundreds of lawyers. And so it's really, in the French press, has been seen as the trial of, of the century because of the enormity of what will be discussed. That said, as a trial, the questions that can be asked are really only about the guilt or innocence of these people and the expectation 
I think, among many people who are following the trial is that it will be able to answer much bigger questions that are well beyond the scope of what can happen in a courtroom. Questions like, why was France attacked? What is the future of terrorism in France and in Europe? Questions that go far beyond the kinds of, of things that can be discussed. You mentioned just now the, the more than 2,000 plaintiffs or civil parties in the case. And some of them are survivors, some are relatives of the dead. And in an English or Scottish or American court, they would be witnesses. You wouldn't have civil plaintiffs in, in the same way. But in, you quote some of their statements, which describing their horrendous physical and psychological wounds. Some of them apportioned blame beyond the immediate perpetrators or the people whose orders they were obeying. You quote one who said, I point the finger at all the little Abdel Slams in France. Um, another who says, I'm angry at the state. So in other words, they seem to they express the same differences of opinion that you find or would expect to find in in wider society. And those those differences of opinion are, are shared by those most immediately affected by the atrocities. So is the trial in some sense a, a microcosm of of France, or is that trying to make it carry more meaning than it can than it can bear? So, um, as you say, the legal system of the trial is incredibly complex, and having done a fair bit of court reporting in the United States, I was unprepared for the differences uh, with the French legal system. The court is a is a French special assise court, which takes a particular form when it comes to terrorism cases. So you have a, a panel of judges, which are led by the president of the court, in this case, Jean-Louis Perriès, and the victims of the attack, so those who survived the attacks and families, uh, bereaved families, they are plaintiffs in this case, uh, which gives them a very particular stature. What is additionally different about this trial is that the statements that they are invited to give in the court are particularly complex. So they um, are invited to speak uh, not only about what they saw and what they witnessed over the course of of the attack, but also about their life afterwards, the possible uh, physical difficulties or or mental health difficulties that they might have experienced, as well as, and I think this is really particular to this court case, they are also allowed to, to talk in court about what they think about the trial itself. And this, I think, changes um, some of the nature of the court proceedings because it does end up adding to the expectations of what this this court case can do because once you add these particular questions or expectations about what the court case can bring, then its possible repercussions become about more than the guilt or innocence of the accused. You spent many days, weeks, listening to this testimony in the court. What was it like to hear these stories day after day from the people who'd, who'd experienced these appalling things? Yes, well, the testimonies of the survivors and their families were really, really powerful and, and very moving and often a strange mix of, of being almost impossible to listen to and at the same time extremely affecting. You had people describing in horrific detail trying to escape the concert hall by climbing over dead bodies or in one case using a dead body to shield herself, um, people describing losing limbs, uh, people describing losing their friends or, or children. It was often also quite, 
quite moving to see how difficult it has been for many of the um, the survivors of these attacks to to move on, and a number of people expressing horrible PTSD from the attacks and an inability to to sort of live their lives afterwards. Especially in the Badakhlan concert hall, you know, this was a rock concert that um, that concert goers were attending, and many of them were were relatively young, you know, students um, out for a night on the town, and for many of them, their lives just just stopped after this this moment, after this attack. I mean, does it have some kind of almost therapeutic purpose, both for the for the plaintiffs who are able to speak in public to the extent that they want to about what happened and about their thoughts and feelings about that. And also for France as a whole, as a way to address these larger questions of, of well, which will come to of terrorism and, and immigration and France's sense of itself. Well, um, a number of the the plaintiffs who did testify did did talk about having a sense of closure from, from testifying um, a sense of... Um, of I wouldn't say satisfaction, but certainly of of almost national pride that the terrorists were getting a due process um, and that there was going to be justice done in the case of these attacks. The question, though, of how much this trial is for the victims of the attacks versus for determining the guilt and innocence of the accused is one that has provoked quite a bit of discussion in the French media with some writers saying, for example, that it shouldn't be too oriented towards the victims because that is not the point of a criminal trial. I mean, I think it's it's a very interesting case because it's worth noting. So it is a, you know, it is a trial. The accused are getting due, due process. It's an impressive uh, deployment of the, the organ of French justice. And it's certainly been very impressive to see how many resources were put into this trial, you know, all the way down to building a special room that could accommodate the, the security issues for the for the trial, as well as the hundreds of plaintiffs who might show up on any given day to, to witness what's, what's happening. I think once the rhetoric delves too far, or delves deeply into these questions of, you know, this is French civilization showing its, its fairness, that becomes dangerous territory because, of course, no system of justice is absolutely, absolutely perfect, and every system of justice has its limitations. And a number of the, per- the per- perpetrators who didn't blow themselves up on the day were—I mean, understandably enough—well, they were shot by the police a few days later. So there is a sense in which some of the people are not on trial because they were executed by the state. Well, um, so two of them died in a police raid. Um, but um, if I'm not mistaken here, one bl- blew himself up and the other uh, was died in the impact of, of that. But um, in addition to that, five, five of the accused um, are presumed dead in, in coalition strikes in the Middle East, which, of course, adds a certain wrinkle to the idea of everyone getting a due process in the eye of the French state. Yes, yeah, so, and I mean, I don't know how far, far back in history we need to go, but the I mean, you know, do we talk about the Algerian War? Do we talk about, you know, the long history of, of French colonialism? And well, I, without creating a you know a history lesson, I think the question of how far back do you go and how 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 do you actually frame these attacks has been a central one to this trial. 
as I discussed briefly in in the piece, you know, there are there are essentially two, very crudely put, there are essentially two schools of thought about what provokes jihadi terrorism in Europe. One that sees it as as coming out of an interpretation of Islam, and the other one that sees it as drawn from more sociological factors. And one thing that was very interesting in this trial has been that a number of expert witnesses who are who are experts of jihadism, of terrorism in France, were called in to testify by either uh, the plaintiffs or by the defense. And the ones who are called by the plaintiffs, whose explanations for terrorism were more based on a religious understanding of those actions, often agreed to, te- to testify, whereas the ones who were called by the defense, who often had more sociological interpretations of terrorism, refused to, te- to testify, in part because, as one of them told Le Monde, they were afraid of how they would be perceived and it might cast a shadow on their own research if they were seen as being the terrorist experts or the terrorist sociologists. And that they would be described as apologists for terrorism. That would be the risk that they were worried about, yeah. And as you say, that France has been in a state of emergency since the attacks and that the trial is being shaped by currents in domestic politics which have been accentuated and accelerated by the attacks. Would you say briefly what, what those currents are? Yeah, so um, the the attacks and especially the response to the attacks have really shaped the French uh, political system and the French public discourse and French law ever since 2015. Most prominently, there were a number of emergency measures that were put in place after the attacks that became law, uh, that were made law in 2017. And at the same time, the idea of Islamic separatism as as a particular threat to the French state has also been met with a legal response. So uh, one of President Macron's signature pieces of legislation in the last few years has been a big bill that was passed last summer uh, that seeks to, to, to stop the possibility of separatism with new regulations around things like associations and by redefining, um, quote, Republican values in France. And, there, and the question of, um, of, of laïcité, secularism in France, which when, when there's its history of it, it was supposed to be right, the, separ- the separation of, of the state from the Catholic Church. But it's now become largely about, about Islam. And the long question, the attempts to, to ban women from wearing the veil, and these, well, essentially it's, it looks, <laughs> looks to me at least, it's, and as to many people, it's racism disguised as disguised as laïcité? Well, that's certainly an argument that a number of people, including a number of human rights activists, have made about about these these laws. I think how it plays out in the trial is, you know, is, is a little bit more subtle. For one thing, there's a huge amount of unease about how to talk about religion in the trial and and where to talk about it. So, for example, in February, there was a week devoted to the personality of the accused and getting to know them outside of the attacks but questions about religion or their religious practices uh, were forbidden during that time. So and what was the reason for forbidding that? Uh, you would have to ask uh, the president of the court who put together the very, very exhaustive schedule that the lawyers have been, have been following. But my understanding is that that's actually not uncommon in, in terrorism cases. But I think that the, 
Um, the paradox of that is actually when the accused have spoken about religion, a, a large number of them are not particularly religious and have certainly not used that as any kind of justification for their for their actions, which goes against quite a bit of the understanding that uh, really motivates uh, the French government in putting through these laws. What sort of reasons did they give? What were their expressed motives? Well, with with such a large number of accused, it's hard to, you know, one, one should be wary of generalizing too much, especially since a number of them, uh, a number of the accused have have admitted to of being guilty of doing certain actions, but without the understanding of what they were participating in, especially those who were a little bit more distant from the planning and the conception of the attacks. The accused, who I think has, has taken up the most media attention and who has certainly sought the most media attention, Salah Abdeslam, has really vacillated in his, in his explanation for why he participated in the attacks. And um, Abdeslam is a his his participation in this trial uh, was really greatly awaited by the French public because in the years leading up to the trial, he's been in solitary confinement and he has also basically kept near total silence about his participation. But being as he is the the last sur- surviving member of the the terrorists who um who attacked Paris, you know, obviously people have been very keen to hear from him. When he has spoken, he's vacillated between two very different arguments. Um, the first is that he is a committed jihadist, that he sees his uh, participation in these attacks as uh, retribution for, um, for the killing of civilians by Western forces in the Middle East, and that he has a political argument for why these attacks were necessary. And at the same time, he has also claimed over the course of this trial that he did not wish to participate in the attacks, that he uh, refused to blow up his suicide vest, and that he should be in some way either perhaps not acquitted, but that his punishment should be lessened by the fact that he, unlike the other terrorists, did not go through with it. But there has been some suggestion that his, his vest failed and that he's now making yeah it's um it's really an open question uh which of these um which of these versions of abdislam is true um an expert witness who came to the court you know showed pretty definitively that his vest was defective so whether he knew that or not is not something that i think we can say for sure no and very possibly he can't either after you know six years later after that time in solitary confinement I mean, the, the the vacillation and the, the apparent incoherence and confusion in his account, you know, it's very possible that he he doesn't know himself what he was thinking, you know, before and during and, and, and since. Well, he certainly had quite a long time to think about it. And his his lawyer has made the case that he has in some ways become softened or rehumanized by the fact of going to this trial and being out of of solitary confinement. It's really hard to know whether that's true, and certainly after having watched him on this, you know, speak um, over the course of these many months, it's hard to uh, to shake the feeling that um, he's actually very pleased with the attention. He knows that he is of all the accused, uh, the the most well known, the only one who is a household name in France. Um, that he is France's 
most famous prisoner right now and that he that when he speaks he knows that what he says will end up in in the paper the next day and i think that that is also a guiding influence for the way that he has addressed the court this is the lrb podcast if you enjoy listening to it you'll probably enjoy reading the london review of books to subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. And the other extremely famous witness, of course, has been um, former president Francois Hollande, who was, who was president at, at the time. And is it right he's the only president of France who's who's been called as a witness in a criminal trial is that right he is um the only uh former president who has been called in one of these special assise court trials and that provoked a huge amount of of media attention you know going to this trial there would be days when there'd just be a, a dozen journalists there and then uh days like last November when François Hollande showed up and one had to to line up for like an hour to get in because of all of the media attention around his appearance. The big question was what exactly what was his um, his testimony for? François Hollande at the time of the attacks was in the Stade de France in the National Stadium, outside of which one part of these attacks took place. But he he wasn't a witness to the attacks because they were outside, um, and the. Lawyers for the defense, many of them opposed his being um, being at the the trial, saying that he it it was politicizing the events by adding someone who was not offering either eyewitness account or any factual expertise that could enlighten the facts of the case. Although, to the extent that it was a failure of the state, either in terms of intelligence gathering or or more broadly, there is a sense in which he is a key figure. He was president of France at the time. It, to the extent that it was an attack on France. I mean, he, admittedly, he may not be able to say anything very enlightening, but to say that he he doesn't have anything to do with it, it seems. Um, well, and, and that was the, 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 the argument that was, um, one of the arguments that was put forth by the lawyers uh, for the plaintiffs who, who called him. Um, uh, and, you know, and in, in addition to that, Hollande was actually cited by name, by the attackers in the Bataclan, as they justified their own actions. And in, in a tape that was made of the attack by a, a dictaphone that was left in the concert, um, parts of which were played in the trial and other parts of which were, were read out loud, a transcript of which was read out loud, you know, the, the terrorists very clearly named him as responsible in their eyes um, for the circumstances that, that led them to, um, to produce this act of terrorism. And is it known whether his presence in the Stade de France was part of the reason for the choice of the target and the, and the date? It's um, the the attack on the Stade de France. There are a number of of anomalies in how that was carried out, and it appears to have been very somewhat incoherently planned. The terrorists who participated in that attack it was a a soccer game uh, involving. Bayern Munich, and they they took the care to um, to to dress up as fans 
uh, but they didn't take the care to buy tickets, um, so they weren't actually able to go inside. So what they were thinking uh, remains a bit of a murky point. And in the in the days after the attacks, that there was the Hollande led the procession of you know, he walked hand in hand with Angela Merkel and other leaders through the streets of Paris, and there was this very powerful apparent sense of of solidarity with with France and with the leadership of France. But in the longer term, I mean, he's it caused the, his political collapse and the collapse of his of his party as well, or it or it didn't save him from collapse in the way that that often terrorist attacks, as with nine eleven, that increased George Bush's popularity and you know, he won the next election. That Hollande's party is no is no longer any kind of a force in French politics. And how how much is that connected to the to the terrorist attacks? Well, Hollande was and I think still is uh, one of the least popular politicians in France and certainly at the by the end of his tenure his popularity rankings were in the single digits and I think that these attacks have a large part to do with it the idea that he wasn't able to keep French people safe from attacks I don't think he did himself any favors by getting into a political a personal scandal uh involving uh, scooting around Paris to buy croissants for his mistress. But in the years since, uh, the Socialist Party has really struggled to come back from that. Um, in the 2017 elections, the party made the uh, the choice to, to run a different candidate, Amon, um, who came in with, I think, 6% of the vote. And in these most recent elections, uh, this past April, the candidate, Anne Hidalgo, actually got less than 2% of the vote, which, considering that the Socialist Party uh, was once the largest party in France, is, is quite surprising. But there is a sense in which Macron, I mean, he presents he presented himself, presents himself still as neither left nor right, and you know, on marche and is a new party. But he was a he was a minister in Hollande's government, wasn't he? So there's a sense in which Macron is the continuity candidate for the Parti Socialiste and for, from from Hollande. In many ways, yes. I mean, he he did come out of that um, of that government. Many of the people who are around him are former members of the PS, and many of his supporters are also former members of the of the Socialist Party. That said, there are you know real political differences between between En Marche, which pushes for a certain kind of of liberalization of the French state, and what a socialist government might put forward. And I I do think that. A lot of what Macron has, um, Macron's policies borrow, you know, as much if not more from the center right than from the center left. And the center right has also collapsed, hasn't it? The party that now calls itself Les, Re- Les Républicains, the Republicans, that I suppose comes out of the the Gaullist tradition. Although there's something Gaullist about Macron as well, in, in some ways. Yes. Well, one thing about covering French politics that you pick up rather quickly is that almost everyone sees them as a Gaullist, sees themselves as a Gaullist candidate, but that doesn't always have such a direct bearing on what they're actually saying or doing. But certainly um, the collapse of these two major parties is at least partly related to their to their reactions to this attack, at least from, from my perspective. I mean, you see that um, on the center left, the, the Socialist Party was very wary about engaging in any of the very sharp, very far-right influenced debates that were surrounding the presidential election to the point where it often seemed that they were holding themselves apart 
from these questions, and certainly they did not offer a concrete alternative vision um, for what French society is or or how it might move forward. And on the center right, uh, the candidate Valérie Pécresse really took a hard right turn, going as far as to talk about nativist theories like the Great Replacement in one of her campaign rallies, uh, which completely tanked her campaign. Because people who believe that are going to vote for, they're already going to vote for um, for Zemmour, we haven't talked about yet, are going to vote for Le Pen or, or Eric Zemmour, right? So if you if you start taking on that far, that white supremacist rhetoric, people who are repelled by it are going, to le- are going to leave and people who agree with it are going to vote for someone further right. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's worth not losing sight of the fact that, you know, in the, in the run-up to, um, to the election, the biggest issues were really that on the minds of voters were really economic issues, things like cost of living, which, um, as in many countries, has become has really increased in the past few months and has become very difficult for for many French people. But there was a huge disconnect between the issues that people were interested in and a lot of the political conversation. And it often seemed that many of the politicians, especially in the center-right, were were trying to chase after this kind of far-right voter, who, of course, as many scholars of of the far-right have, have said, are, are not going to want to have... Uh, the copy when they can go for the original. And on on the anniversary of the attacks on the on the thirteenth of November last year, that the court, as you say, was was closed. And um, Eric Zemmour made a opportunistic speech outside the Vatican, as presumed as part of his presidential campaign. Had he had he declared himself for the presidency yet, or was planning to? Well, it was not yet campaign season, but everyone knew what he was up to. His speech did not go over well. I mean, he essentially stood in front of the Bataclan and used it as um, a podium for all of his anti-immigration, anti-Muslim ideas. And the largest association for victims of the attack immediately put out a statement saying, essentially, listen, we are not going to be the stepladder for your campaign. Our experience as victims has absolutely nothing to do with you know, these, these statements that you're making and don't say them in our name. You quote the, the political scientist, uh, Olivier Roy, who's one of the, who didn't speak um, at the trial, who's called as a defense witness. But, um, and he said that the trial should be a trial of a system of ideas, of an ideology. What did he mean by that? Well, he was referring there, I think, to the, these outside expectations of, of this trial, that the judges are meant to, to determine guilt or innocence but that the expectation is that coming out of the trial, we might have some larger system of, of ideas about about terrorism that's really not the purpose of this trial and certainly can't be, that expectation can't be met by by the facts of it. Olivier Roy, you know, I mentioned earlier that there are these, um, uh, crudely speaking, these two schools of how to understand terrorism, and he very much falls on the more sociological side of things and was among those who refused to participate in the trial, choosing instead to write this, I suppose, this, this essay in which he basically went after the, the trial as producing a sense of, of false expectations of what it could actually accomplish and what it could actually illuminate about terrorism and France. 
Well, one witness who did testify was um, Azdin Amimor, the father of one of the, of the bombers, and he's written a book with the father of one of the victims. Was his testimony informative and, and helpful? And is that writing of the book, is that attempt to, to bridge the divide in the writing of that book helpful? Well, his testimony was very interesting, and I think the reaction to it was um, even more interesting because the lawyers, especially the lawyers for the plaintiffs, spoke to him as if they were expecting an expert witness, but the person they had in front of them was a father who was bereaved at the, the loss of, of his son, who had, against his own, his own wishes, you know, blown himself up in this attack, killing, killing people along with him. Amimo, as you said, um, his testimony was, was very eager, eagerly awaited because of this book that he had written, um, also because he, when he has spoken about his son, he's often said things that are somewhat in, inconsistent. Um, he says that he went to Syria to try to dissuade his son from being in in the Islamic State, but a number of the narratives that he has put forward don't add up, and it's very unclear whether that is why why that is. And when he came into the courtroom, the questions that he got from from the the lawyers were often, I would say, on the limit of of being almost accusatory. You know, why didn't you call this? free hotline where you could have reported your son? Why didn't you go and see an imam? Why didn't you cut off internet in your apartment if you knew that your son was looking at this or that on on the internet? And the man who did his, you know, the man who answered these questions really just seemed bereaved and broken and unable to, to give these lawyers what they wanted. And as you've said, the, the trial is due to end at the, at the end of this month. Whatever the outcome, will justice have been served? This question of whether justice will have been served is a tricky one because, you know, I do think that at the end of this case, justice will have been served for these 14 accused, but justice is like, it's never perfect. And certainly it can't meet the expectations of of coming to a conclusion, not only about these men, uh, but also every other problem in French modern history that has somehow become a part of this trial. Madeleine Schwartz, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Madeleine Schwartz's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Jonathan Meads on The Palace Papers, Colin Burrow on Stanley Cavell, and Miranda Carter on Desert Island Discs. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt. (laughs) 